Do you want to start? It doesn't matter. Okay. Hey. Hi, everybody. I'm Kirby. I'm Katie. And we're the Killer Babes Podcast. Yes, we are. I think we need to work on trying to say that in unison. Yeah. Oh, at the same time? Yeah. Yeah. And we're? Killer Babes. The Killer Babes. Nah, that's so corny. Yeah, that sucks. Um, Welcome back to episode 23 this Mm -hmm. week. Yeah. Yes. So what's up? I'm currently cooking a ham. Mm-hmm. That's the first time I've said ham, not turkey. Yeah, you keep calling it turkey. It's most My definitely bad. ham. Who knew that a 20-pound ham took almost 10 hours? <laughs> she goes, she goes, I think I just used it in the oven for like two hours. I'm like, okay. <laughs> she goes, wait a second. It says 20 minutes per pound. I'm like, that's 20-pound ham. That's going to take a while. Um, but that's fine. We're having Friendsgiving today. Yep. So we're just gonna have to push it back a couple hours. (laughs) It's fine. It's just us here right now. Yeah. So everyone will just show up at four or five, six. It doesn't matter. It's dinner time. They'll eat the ham when the ham is done, you know? Yeah. We'll eat when we're ready to eat. Yeah, I think we'll be ready to eat soon. I think it's a matter (laughs) of when the ham's done. Yeah, so it's just in there while we're doing this episode. It's it's chilling while cooking. Yeah. And what else have we got on the docket? Sweet potatoes, green bean casserole. Sweet potato, green bean cast, uh, stuffing, stuffing, cranberry sauce, bread, mm-hmm. mashed potatoes, and an unspecified dessert that a friend is bringing. Yeah. Nervous. TBD. But excited. <laughs> TBD on that one, guys. Uh, I don't know, but we have a huge array for like. Mm, <laughs> Our only friends, which are about four or five of us, so it's going to be great. And wine, obviously. I miss that one. Oh, lots of wine. Yeah. It'll be a great time. And cranberry juice for me, because I love cranberry juice. I think I could drink cranberry juice for literally my entire life. It's kind of weird. Do you know how much sugar is in cranberry juice? I do. It's very unhealthy. It's bad. (laughs) It's... I, I think it's too sweet, but, you know, whatever. I like to mix it with something sweeter, Sprite or ginger ale. Yeah, that's really bad. It's fine. My dentist loves it. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, that's what we have going on in our lives. Yes, it's very exciting. Nothing else, really. But it doesn't matter. Last night. What did we do? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I forgot. <laughs> we went to JVM. Does everyone know what that means? Probably not. Probably not. Um, Jonathan Van Ness. Yes. From Netflix's amazing show, Queer Eye, slash author slash gymnast comedian slash gymnast slash ice skater slash hair cutter y'all we did not know what to expect going into it because we bought these tickets probably like six months ago for like 30 bucks and it was like oh yeah, you're like something you're like i do. just bought us uh tickets to Jonathan Bass. i'm like okay i guess we'll when see you there it? in six months <laughs> and then last week we we're like oh shit we gotta go to this i kind of like doing that though buying something super far in advance because i almost forget about it like i thought oh, it was yeah. last weekend but it was this weekend and then it's like, oh, surprise. Wait, I have something to look forward to. So, I don't know. Yeah, it was it was fun. He was it was he was funny. I didn't really know what to expect either, but it was basically <laughs> like stand up mixed with gymnastics. Yeah. Mhm. Mixed with like personal stories. Mixed with story time, which um, I loved. Yeah, it was fun. Mm. <laughs> That's about it from the show that I got. With that, we can just I guess we're not really great at segues, so. Really not. It doesn't really matter. Okay. We can just go in. So that is our weekend. Yeah. It's a good one. And it's a long weekend this weekend. Uh, not for me. Well, that sucks. You should just take I literally don't off. get any holidays off, 
So that sucks. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I cannot um, relate. <laughs> it's okay though. It's fine. I am I'm taking a week off soon. Mm. Oh, I guess we can't. So yeah, we'll probably take Thanksgiving week off because I am going away. But also we should really just spend it with time. Our time with friends and family. What? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like we should spend it with our family and our listeners should spend it with their oh, loved Thanksgiving ones. week, yeah. 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 Well, let's take a week off of murder and mayhem and sadness and celebrate Thanksgiving with our family and friends. And if you don't celebrate Thanksgiving, have a meal and just be thankful for something. Yeah, of course. That's what we're going to be doing in a couple weeks. Yeah. So we're not great at segues. I don't know if we really have a good segue for this upcoming story that we're about to tell you. No, but that's okay. I think we can just kind of dive in, dive into it, but we should probably give you guys a little bit of a warning because this is a rough one. Mm -hmm. It's very sad. It is. Yes. I'll start with just a short disclaimer before we start. In this episode, the following content is graphic and describes the Wakefield massacre from the recordings in the courtroom in Commonwealth versus McDermott. This shooting episode may cause intense psychological and physiological symptoms for people with PTSD and other anxiety disorders. On Tuesday, December 26, 2000, at Edgewater Technology in Wakefield, Massachusetts, gunman Michael, also known as Mucko McDermott, an application support employee, shot and killed seven co-workers. This event is now known as the Wakefield Massacre. Michael Morgan McDermott, also known as Mucko, was actually born Michael Me Dermod Martinez on September 4, 1958 in Marshfield, Massachusetts. He was the second of four children of Richard A. and Rosemary Martinez, who were both teachers and upstanding members of their local historical society. They were also strict Catholics. According to court hearings later in the Commonwealth versus McDermott, McDermott was repeatedly raped by a neighbor as a young boy. McDermott, as a teenager, often helped his parents in their community work and was a member of the Marshfield High Audiovisual Club. He was considered a geek, which is a little stereotypical, um, so I'm not quite sure if back then geek had the same meaning as today, but that's how his former classmates described him. Although highly gifted with a high intelligence, he did receive poor grades. He also reportedly broke into a neighbor's house at one point. He first attempted suicide as a teenager by taking numerous sleep-easy pills, which his parents then sent him to a psychologist who violated his trust by failing to maintain his confidences. In 1976, he graduated from Marshfield High, and on June 28, 1976, McDermott enlisted in the United States Navy and served in several Marine training schools until September 1, 1977. He was then assigned to the Nuclear Power Training Unit in Idaho Falls. From April 5, 1978 to April 23, 1982, he served as an electrician on the USS Norwal and was sent to the Personal Support Detachment at the Naval Station in Charlestown, South Carolina. Charleston. (laughs) Why did I say Charlestown? That's embarrassing. (laughs) Charleston, South Carolina. This job did require rigorous uh, psychological screening. Bruce Joy, one of his crewmates who served with McDermott on the Norwal, which... When you hear Norwal, do you think of anything else besides? Buddy the Elf. Yeah, I think it's just, <laughs> it's just themed with the timing. It's of yeah, almost Christmas, like holiday season. 
I, I just think of bod. Boy. For the longest time, too, I thought a Norwal was, like, a fake thing. I know. You thought it's like, a unicorn. <laughs> yeah. Well, because they don't actually look like that, right? Because in the movie, it is, like, a unicorn that lives in the sea. Right? They still have that horn. They do have that horn? <laughs> yeah. Really? Well, that's crazy. Why would they have a horn? <laughs> to, like, spear things in the ocean? I don't know. Wait, I'm sure everybody it's pause biological. One I need I just need one second. You want me to type into Google? Hey Google, why does No, I just want to say, Oh my god. Have a horn. It you literally looks like a I just caught a the spear. Biggest deja vu. I almost think if we go back into our podcast around this happened? holiday time, I really think we talked about a narwhal. Really? Or maybe we just talked about it before, but I just had like crazy crazy Deja vu. So Ew, horn, look at how weird that is. You know the horns, actually, their front teeth? And it can reach as long as nine freaking feet. So I was right. How is it a they, tooth? It's they, a... <laughs> how is that a tooth? Where are the sea dentists <laughs> up at? So they use their little horn or tooth to find food. And they also use it to find mates. And it looks like they kind of use it to toast others or cheers together. Yeah, they're all just clinking their <laughs> teeth. What if we just? What if that was a uh, custom, a customary tradition that we did or we started? We just clink. How do they not impale each other backs and all the time? Look at that. They're just hanging and loving each other. Look at they look like an army. Okay, I'm blown away. I knew this was a thing, but I guess I never really like looked at it or looked into it. Like that's insane. Those things are so long. Yeah, that's got to be hard to maneuver and. Oh, this is a fun fact. The scientific name for a narwhal is monodon monocerius, which is derived from Greek, meaning one tooth, one horn. Oh, that's kind of cute. <laughs> so, wait, they have one tooth and that's it? So it's a tooth slash horn? I actually don't know if they just have one tooth or if just one grows, like, abnormally long. <laughs> Do you think there's, like, a weird scientific um, discovery where a narwhal actually had, like, all of their teeth grew that large and they just had 12 horns sticking out? No, that would be terrible. That would be so heavy. <laughs> like, that how it twists. really disturbing it's photo so to look gross. at. I don't like that photo. I hate it. Choose a different one because they're actually well, kind of cute. Like. No, that one's cute. Look, he's smiling. But that's his mouth. So how is that a tooth? <clears throat> it's coming out of his upper lip. What? Yeah. That's what Google I said. I hate it so much. <laughs> that photo's adorable. I hate No, it's not. Look, it's just like a... Well, bleh, don't look so at the little gross. hole. Look at the animated one from like Elf or something. See, that one has headphones on. That's cute. <laughs> <laughs> it's an antenna. <laughs> that's adorable. <laughs> Oh my god, no, it's disturbing. I hate it. Okay, sorry. Okay. Uh that super sidetracked. I got my fix of Norwals. <laughs> I just needed to. All right, back to the story. So Bruce Joy was one of his crewmates who served with McDermott on the Norwal. Um, and Bruce said that McDermott was a decent enough comrade, but that he could quote lash out sometimes if he felt insulted or slighted, quote, in ways that might really shock you. Joy said, he once cut my leg with a knife. I don't think he meant to get so close, and he was apologetic. It wasn't intentional, but it's the kind of thing a person does without thinking. Just one of those scurvy things that said something about his character. Bruce Joy also commented, saying, quote, When somebody violated his personal space and got too close to him, he responded by sneezing directly in the guy's face. 
Bruce Joy stated, quote, in the bizarre world of the submarine community, there was nothing that would suggest that he would do what he did, end quote. In 1980, Michael McDermott Martinez, which was his original name, he changed his name, um, which is a pretty Hispanic surname, to a slight variation of his middle name, McDermott, thus becoming Michael Morgan McDermott in alleged attempts to sound more Irish. His nickname Mucko stuck, though, as a nephew couldn't pronounce his first name. <laughs> Mucko stuck, though. Stuck, though. So the okay. nephew was trying to say Michael, but it, it, that's like, pretty cute. Mucko, Mucko. Yeah, I like when little kids do that, and then something like that sticks forever. Yeah, that's a good nickname. On June 27th, 1982, McDermott was honorably discharged with the rank of Electrician's Mate Petty Officer Second Class. From 1982 to 1988... McDermott worked for the main Yankee nuclear power plant, where he trained to become a nuclear reactor operator, though he never managed to become a reactor operator. He received a promotion in 1985, but during this time frame, McDermott displayed signs of mental illness. In February 1987, he tried to commit suicide by cutting his wrists, and he was admitted to Pembroke Hospital, which is obviously in Pembroke, Mass., he later filed a workers' compensation claim because he was not allowed to work, citing his stress-induced suicide attempt, and he received $85,000 in a settlement of that claim. He returned to Massachusetts and, in September 1989, began taking classes at Northeastern University. In May 1989, he was admitted to a Boston hospital again for a few days because he was suicidal. McDermott then moved to Weymouth, Mass., and began working as a technologist in the battery products group of Duracell Battery in Needham in July of 1990. In the early 1990s, he attempted suicide by overdosing on Xanax. He was admitted again to Pembroke Hospital for seven weeks this time. On September 26, 1992, McDermott married Monica Sheehan, a former high school classmate although it was short-lived as they separated in May 1996 and were divorced by 1997. McDermott summed up that short period of time in 1997 on a website for Norwal veterans that read, quote, Well, I came back to the land of my youth and married a childhood friend. Lasted three and a half years before she split, end quote. His wife, Monica Sheehan, moved to a Chicago suburb, and afterward, McDermott gained weight and adopted an increasingly shaggy look after the divorce. McDermott resigned from his job at Duracell in February 2000 when the company was about to move to Bethel, Connecticut. He was offered a job at the new location, but instead he joined Edgewater Technology in March 2000. On October 31, 2000, McDermott moved out of his apartment in South Weymouth after failing to pay his rent. He left the residence in poor state and owed the owner approximately $1,720. Landlord Saburo Imura said that he had to completely renovate the apartment after McDermott left because there was a broken dishwasher, holes in the walls, a torn carpet, and the remnants of a flood, presumably from the broken dishwasher. McDermott moved into an apartment in Haverhill, Massachusetts, roughly 30 miles north of Wakefield, Massachusetts. A neighbor who lived upstairs for McDermott in Haverhill said McDermott mentioned... Wait, I gotta stop you. You get, you just say Haverhill. <laughs> Haverhill? <laughs> yeah. And this might have been one of the towns that we did in our... But I only know because I have been there. And it's... You just don't pronounce the H. Haverhill. I've also been there. That's where the sunflower field is. 
<laughs> I don't know. It's like but I believe farm. you that you know your sunflower fields. Oh, I do. One in Providence. It's one up far. There. It is far. It's like three hours from here. Maybe. Yeah. With traffic. Well, that's embarrassing that you went there and didn't know how to say it. Well, they have sunflowers there. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Haverhill. So McDermott moved into an apartment in Haverhill, Massachusetts, which is 30 miles north of Wakefield, Massachusetts. A neighbor who lived upstairs from McDermott in Haverhill said McDermott mentioned, mentioned at one point he collected antique guns, but, quote, overall kept a quiet demeanor and never talked about his company, end quote. Another neighbor named Marjorie Richardson said in an interview that he had only been living in the neighborhood for a couple of months and didn't seem to have settled in yet. Quote, he wasn't here very long. He just said hello and goodbye, end quote. Time.com described him as a community-focused Good Samaritan who would drive an hour to Dedham, Massachusetts every week for more than six years to donate blood platelets. This procedure sometimes took up to two hours, about twice as long as the normal blood donation. McDermott gave voluntarily, receiving no financial compensation. So Time.com painted the community picture even further, saying that his car's rear bumper sticker said, Give Blood. In all seriousness, though, there's no end to the benefits of donating blood for those who need it. According to American Red Cross, just one donation can save as many as three lives, and someone in the United States needs blood every two seconds. So go donate blood. Yeah, that's a great cause. Yes, and they also give you a cookie and a bottle of water after. That's the only reason you know. No, I just, <laughs> just think kidding. that's like a great incentive for people who are like, ooh, I don't know, I'm squeamish of needles. Look away, close your eyes. Eat a cookie. Yeah. Okay, so now we're jumping to December 26th of 2000. At this point, Michael McDermott is a 42-year-old application support employee at Edgewater Technology, a stable internet consulting firm about 10 miles north of downtown Boston. Edgewater Technology had about 150 employees in Wakefield, a town of 25,000 people. In April 1999, an Arkansas-based company in the business of providing temporary workers, Staffmark Inc., bought Edgewater Technology for an undisclosed sum. The merger created a company with 2,000 employees and a $1.2 billion in sales. Wow. That's a lot. Money. Yeah, that's a big change from 150 employees to... 2000. <laughs> yep. That's big. McDermott wrote code and tested the company's software in a cubicle housed in a 19th century brick refurbished mill complex. He was described by his co-workers as quiet, quirky, and very private. Mike Stanley, a team leader at Edgewater Technology, described McDermott as amiable, a peculiar, a bit of space shop, who worked well when he worked, but repeatedly came in late. Mike Stanley said he gave the impression he was a bit strange, that's all, adding McDermott never appeared threatening. A week before Christmas, McDermott had complained to colleagues about the garnishment and asked for a cash advance, which was denied by one of the victims. According to the Commonwealth versus Michael McDermott case on Friday, December 22nd, McDermott asked three of his co-workers to come to his cubicle to witness the signing of his will. He walked them through the instructions, and they witnessed his signature to the document and then signed it themselves, um, which we thought was weird. Like, why Why would he? Well, it's not common for you to, like, ask your coworkers to no, I sign your will as a, a little witness. Weird. 
Like, I've never heard of such a... And also, if someone did that at my work, I would probably say no thanks, and I don't know. Yeah, I would be definitely be like, why, why me? Because... He had family. Like, yeah, he had family. He had, he had family around. Siblings. Um, I guess we don't we don't know the dynamic at all, so no. maybe they weren't close, but... I mean, also, I don't know how wills work, but... I always thought he just took it I to a lawyer. I kind of thought a lawyer was the way. I, well, I guess, okay, so your significant other usually is there with you, or your parent, or your daughter. Or a kid, or, yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. I don't have one. <laughs> okay, yeah, me neither. Should, when, at what point in our lives should we get a will? Probably be when we start to possible. own things. I don't really own anything, so how would I have a will? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I know this is like really morbid, but we just did our benefits for work. And I know that if I die, they pay, I get to pick a beneficiary, which I pick my mom right now. But if I die, that money goes to my mom. Yeah. Yeah, a beneficiary. Yeah. But a will is like, isn't that when you write off all of your possessions yeah. to people? Yeah. So... And some wills are crazy. Well, again, judging, like, my basis is off movies. But when, <laughs> yeah. like, the, there's a new movie coming out where they do a will and the entire will has them. They have to conjugate in this house. I don't really know the entire premises of the movie, but essentially, like, wills can basically make you do things, like, after you're dead to ensure that it happens. And then in return, when you do it, you get the money or you get the possessions or land or whatever. But hmm. it's kind of some person's last wishes that they for sure will get that has to be carried out in order for someone to receive compensation. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Let's like, you have to do this in order to get my money. Yeah. Kind of thing. And yeah. And the lawyer holds them to it. Yeah. It's weird. I don't think I'm ready to fill out a will quite yet. And when I am, I don't think I'll bring it into work to have my coworkers. Sign. <laughs> I, think I would ask like you. But, um, Thanks. Do you welcome. know if your parents will will? Yeah, I think they do. Hmm. I think. Or I I don't know. I like, well, <laughs> Should I ask them? <laughs> no, because they'll be so creeped out. No. They listen, they listen to our Every time my anyway. mom takes a flight, she, like, makes sure I knows where, like, all their bank account info is and, like, oh, everything, yeah. all their papers. She's like, it's all blah, 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 blah. Like, I'm not going to tell everyone. <laughs> yeah, it's all like, Just in case we die. I'm like, mom, Jesus, it's like a two-hour flight. <laughs> No, my grandma and my grandma's actually, she's the exact same way. Really? Yeah. She's yeah. like, just so you know, your mom and I are traveling together. And one day, <laughs> yeah. we might get in a car accident. I know, it's terrible. And I'm terrible, like, Grammy, what? <laughs> okay. I mean, I guess it does, I, I guess it is responsible yeah. for us to know where that, but it's like, oh my God. It's a lot to think about. Yeah. So let's just stop thinking about it. But moral of the story, okay, if your coworker asks you to sign a will, just question it maybe question at it. least first. Yeah. Yeah. A little. On Christmas Eve, Haverhill police officers received a call at 11.40 p.m. reporting gunshots. Investigators later learned that a man driving a car with the license plate Mucko had been spotted in a wooded area five minutes from his apartment. They later found a handful of shotgun shells. Quote, we didn't encounter McDermott, says Sergeant Stephen Briggy. If luck had been on our side, history could have possibly been changed. On Monday, December 25th, Christmas, obviously, McDermott reportedly entered Edgewater Technology at 6.57 p.m. and left 18 minutes later. It was the morning after Christmas, and McDermott had spent the previous day with his family. 
Since it was the day after Christmas, only about 80 of the office's 150 employees were at work. On Tuesday, December 26, 2000, McDermott entered Edgewater wearing a plaid shirt and jeans at 10.29 a.m., carrying a large black duffel bag. He had parked his car in the company's garage. It seemed to be a regular morning as he went to the kitchen and had a brief and friendly conversation with a senior consultant at Edgewater and another co-worker about video games and just living in Haverhill. The last straw for McDermott may have been a call he received at 11.07 a.m. on the day of the shooting. Allegedly, a Chrysler rep called, letting McDermott know that his 1994 Plymouth was going to be repossessed. According to the Boston Globe, McDermott said, quote, I won't be needing it. Come pick it up at the Edgewater garage. Around 11.10 a.m. on December 26, 2000, after the phone call, McDermott got up from his cubicle carrying an AK-47 variant, a 12-gauge shotgun, and a 32 caliber pistol. Entering the reception area, a co-worker asked, quote, where are you going? To which McDermott responded, quote, actually, I need to see someone in human resources, end quote. He entered the reception area and repeatedly shot at Cheryl Troy and Janice Haggerty. He then proceeded down to the human resources office. Rose Manfredi, a payroll manager who had been processing the payroll that day, was standing with Paul Marciu, a project leader, by a file cabinet in the accounting area. They shut and locked the door, telling others to get under their desks. Marciu got under a desk in a co-worker's cubicle. Meanwhile, Jonathan Land, the vice president of consulting services, was standing with Louis Javiel, the director of consulting services, and the defendant's direct supervisor in a hallway. McDermott walked toward them and was approximately 15 to 20 feet away. Land went back to his office and heard Javel ask, quote, Mike, why? End quote, followed by a gunshot. Land then heard Craig Wood, a technical recruiter who had been sitting in his cubicle in the mezzanine area, say, Mike, no. The defendant shot Wood in two series of blasts, killing him. Between the series of blasts, Wood repo- reportedly said, quote, ow, and then please. McDermott proceeded to kill Jennifer Capo Bianco, a software programmer. To get to the last two victims, Rosemary Freddy and Paul Marciu, McDermott blew open the door by shooting the lockout with a shotgun blast. Quote, no one saw it coming, end quote, said a former employee who asked to remain anonymous. I was talking to one guy who was sitting in the conference room when the first bullets were fired. The bullets flew through the glass. They had no idea what was going on. They hit the ground and one individual had glass in his hair, end quote. The victim's autopsies showed the following, and with it is a little description um, of the victims as well. Cheryl Troy, 50 years old, was the vice president of human resources. She was single and was said to have loved spending her time by the ocean. She was shot five times with the AK-47, sustaining gunshot wounds to the head, right arm, and torso. Janice Haggerty, 46 years old, was the office manager slash receptionist. She was just filling in for the holidays and was shot twice with the AK-47 receiving wounds to her head and torso. Louis Javel, 58 years old, was the director of consulting and a single father of four with three sons and a daughter. His wife died several years ago. He was a religious man who kept to himself. His office was in the company's Manchester, New Hampshire office, and he was visiting for the day. He was shot four times with the AK-47 and the shotgun, receiving wounds to his head and torso. 
Craig Wood, 29 years old, was human resources. He was shot five times with the AK-47 and was wounded in the head, legs, and right arm. Jennifer Bragg Capo Bianco was 29 years old, a marketer and a mother who had just returned to work at Edgewater after she and her husband Jeff had a daughter named Eva. She had cut her maternity time short so she could save more money for a house. She was shot four times in the torso with the AK-47. Paul Marcio, 36 years old, was a development technician and avid spinner. He was shot six times with the AK-47 and the shotgun to his leg, right arm, and torso as he tried to crawl away. Rose Manfredi, 48 years old, accountant and payroll department, was going to turn 49 the next day. She was hiding behind a desk and was shot five times with the AK-47 and the shotgun in the legs and head. December 26, 2000, McDermott fired over 35 rounds, shooting his seven innocent victims repeatedly. All of the victims had been alive when they were repeatedly shot. Many workers that day managed to keep safe, and others managed to leave the building and run to the nearby church during the horrific murders. Quote, there was a wall between me and what happened, said one of the employees, who asked not to be identified. Quote, I just heard gunshots and ran out of the building. Employees at select appointments, just a floor above Edgewater Technology, huddled in the company boardroom until police came and ordered people to leave. Ron Fucolo, chief financial officer at select appointments, said, A number of employees heard the gunshots, but we still didn't realize it was this bad. We just thought someone was getting robbed or something, nothing like this. I never in a million years thought something like this would happen. He then went on to say that he did not know McDermott very well, only that he, quote, was a big guy with a beard. We didn't notice anything unusual about him. At approximately 11.15 a.m., officers from the Wakefield Police Department were dispatched to Edgewater in response to several 911 telephone calls. All of Wakefield's officers on duty at the time, seven or eight, including Chief Doherty, rushed to Edgewater Technology. Doherty said he and three of the officers burst through the front door with their guns drawn, and they saw McDermott sitting in a chair in the lobby, motionless, with both arms on the armrests. The defendant's duffel bag was on a couch, and there was an AK-47 semi-automatic assault rifle on the floor by his right foot and a shotgun by his left foot. These weapons were both out of ammunition. The officers told the defendant to put his hands up and get on the ground. The defendant did not respond. An officer then directed the defendant to put his hands on his head, and the defendant replied, quote, I don't speak German. Officers pulled McDermott, a six-foot-two, 320-pound man, to the ground and handcuffed and arrested him without the use of gunfire. They searched McDermott and found a loaded 32 caliber pistol in his front right pocket. His nearby duffel bag contained several fully loaded magazines, loose ammunition, shotgun shells, and some cartridge boxes. The day after the killing, the answering machine in his one-bedroom apartment recorded the following. Hello? This is Michael's computer. Here I am, brain the size of a planet. And what does he have me doing? Reduced to answering the phone. Phones. Oh, how I hate phones. They're so depressing. This was a playful reference to the sci-fi cult classic, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. While searching his apartment, officers found computer equipment, the will, several Dungeon and Dragon books, a passport, gun cases, fuses, blasting caps, bomb-making literature, and three gallons of liquid nitric acid, 
a substance used in the manufacture of nitroglycerin, in a cardboard box labeled in all capital letters, dangerous, do not move. Liquid nitric acid is a colorless, fuming, highly corrosive liquid used in the production of ammonium nitrate for fertilizers and making plastics, but it is also known for making explosives. It is toxic and can cause severe burns when not used appropriately. McDermott also had firearms identification cards for rifles and shotguns that expired in 1999. Neighbors remember him in an unsmiling presence, but by Christmas he seemed to be in good spirits. His neighbor Kevin Forzy, or Forzies, said, quote, I've never seen him cheery, but he was acting very cheery on Christmas. In his work locker, officers found a semi-automatic rifle with a sniper scope, more computer equipment, and live ammunition. In McDermott's car, there was an envelope containing a letter from the IRS. McDermott did not have a permit for any of the weapons he was carrying, nor did he have a prior criminal record. In a statement, the company said McDermott's actions were, quote, apparently stemmed from occurrences in his personal life. Edgewater Technologies executive, chief executive, Shirley Singleton issued an official statement saying, quote, everyone at Edgewater Technology is shocked and devastated by the loss of our friends. We extend our deepest sympathies to the victim's family at this tragic time, end quote. Prosecutors say McDermott was angry with Edgewater Technology, who was complying with an internal revenue service order to withhold part of his wages to cover a debt of $5,586 in back taxes, owed to the IRS. Although the IRS declined to discuss details, reports said the agency was to seize 90% of his wages, leaving him $276 every two weeks, rather than the $1,600 to $2,500 typically earned by software engineers over a two-week pay period. But this was only until he paid off the back taxes. On December 14th, he had a conversation with Cheryl Troy, Vice President of Human Resources, and Patricia Boer, the company's chief financial officer concerning the IRS. When told about the garnishment just before Christmas time, McDermott allegedly burst out, I can't live on that. McDermott reportedly claimed he did not owe the IRS any money and he did not understand why Edgewater Technology had to comply with the garnishment. I'm about ready for my glass of wine. Middlesex District Attorney Martha Coakley who was on the team that prosecuted McDermott and later Attorney General, held a series of meetings with the relatives of the seven victims. While kin of murder victims are understandably distraught, Coakley said these families were devastated by, quote, a random attack that none of them understood and I'm sure still don't. On the opposite side of the trial, McDermott's lawyer, Kevin J. Reddington of Brockton, Mass., called, called on psychiatrists who testified that his client suffered from schizophrenia. Reddington argued McDermott had slid into an, quote, abyss of insanity. On January 18, 2001, Malden District Court Judge ordered McDermott to Bridgewater State Hospital for a psychological evaluation. He pleaded not guilty to seven counts of murder. Reddington, his lawyer, noted he had been under psychiatric care and in a move that suggests an insanity defense, asked that McDermott be allowed to continue to take his psych psychotropic medication. McDermott's elderly parents were in the court hearing and refused to comment, but Reddington said that they were, quote, devastated by the massacre. That's not surprising. 
In a court session, McDermott claimed he had, quote, traveled back in time and killed Hitler and the last six Nazis. Defense attorney Reddington said, quote, I just think the indictments speak volumes, a nod to an insanity defense. McDermott took the stand to testify he was commissioned by St. Michael the Archangel to stop the Holocaust, an act that would allow him to earn a soul, he said. He also said he believes that he was arrested by German police and that he died shortly after in a German police station. McDermott said he was in purgatory, a place where Roman Catholics believe one goes temporarily when they are not yet worthy to go to heaven, and he believed that his lawyer, Reddington, was his guardian angel. Two mental health professionals, Dr. Ann Schwab, a psychologist, and Dr. Alan D. Rothstein, a psychiatrist, both of whom had treated McDermott before December 26, 2000, testified for the defense. Schwab diagnosed the defendant as having a depressive mood disorder and an obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. McDermott disclosed the sexual abuse that he suffered as a child and reported feelings of loneliness, troubles at work, having heard noises from a television when the sound was off, and sensitivity to high-frequency noises. McDermott said that, quote, you learn not to talk about the noises because people think you are crazy. Dr. Rothstein started seeing McDermott in 1996 and diagnosed him as having recurrent major depression, a mixed character disorder, and an obsessive-compulsive personality. In 1999 and 2000, Dr. Rothstein prescribed the defendant Prozac and Trazodone. At a therapy session on March, 2nd, March 7, 2000, McDermott reported that he had started working at Edgewater and that it was, quote, a terrific place. He also acknowledged that he was still having problems with overeating and not eating healthy foods and with credit card use. He also told Dr. Rothstein that he possessed guns. During a session in September of 2000, the defendant stated that he had been depressed for the past two months, had stopped going to the gym, and was upset because the IRS claimed he owed them money. On the stand, McDermott was confronted with evidence seized from his own computer that he had researched, quote, how to fake mental illness. Prosecutor O'Reilly argued that the evidence showed McDermott had also purchased a book on how to feign illness. McDermott admitted he did such research, but that he only did it to learn how to appear sane and to stay out of a mental hospital. On the flip side, the Commonwealth also presented two expert witnesses, psychiatrists Dr. Michael Anuzita and Dr. Malcolm P. Rogers, both of whom testified that, based on their reviews and interviews, McDermott was criminally responsible when he committed the killings and was feigning mental illness. Dr. Inunun Zita considered the defendant's ingestion of pills as a teenager. His self-inflicted superficial scratches on his wrist after he was fired from Maine Yankee and his, quote, insignificant overdose, end quote, of pills in 1990 and said that he did not require hospitalization. Dr. Inunun Zita, Zita, oh, I think I've got it. <laughs> oh, I think I got it, my golly. Dr. Ann Un <laughs> What? That's someone's name. <laughs> yeah, but you're like, oh, I must have it now. And you just pronounced out every letter the slowest way. 
N un zi attack. Got it. We'll say it faster and it creates a word. Okay. Are you done? Yes. <laughs> funny. Dr. Ann Unziata testified saying the acts were mere gestures and not real suicide attempts. He acknowledged McDermott did not have a, quote, happy life in many respects, but explained his depressive disorder and personality disorder did not amount to a mental disease or defect. There were no indicators that McDermott had a psychophrenic disorder because it is not a disorder that abruptly, abruptly appears. Dr. Rogers concluded depression and a personality disorder did not constitute a mental disease or defect. McDermott testified, saying that for as long as he had access to the internet, maybe since 1985, he, quote, wanted to understand what type of insanity he had, end quote, and thus conducted research on his computer. His research included internet searches on how to fake mental illness, psychosis, malingering, and he fully understood the data he retrieved on these subjects. He purchased a book edited by Richard Rogers entitled Clinical Assessment of Malingering and Deception, which he claimed not to understand, and he later obtained an article over the internet on the psychometric detection of malingering. He downloaded an article called Borderline Personality Disorders, Symptoms, and Ideology, which was a supposed attempt at self-diagnosis. He studied and researched the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, MMPI test, which is the most widely used and researched clinical assessment tool used by mental health professionals to help diagnose mental health disorders. Yeah, I just wanted to look up malingering real quick because I thought I knew what it meant, but I wanted to check. So basically, it's a verb that means to exaggerate or feign illness in order to escape duty or work. So yeah, I guess that goes hand in hand with Basically, he was, like, researching, searching the internet and finding books of, like, basically how to feign illness and yeah, malingering is a fancy word for that, apparently. Hmm. Middlesex County District Attorney Martha Coakley said, quote, everything appears to be targeted at the individuals rather than an indiscriminate spraying of gunfire. The victims were at their workstations. The whole thing took between five to ten minutes, end quote. McDermott's parents sat in the front row as Prosecutor O'Reilly said, quote, This was a meth- methodical undertaking. He specifically targeted the individuals we believe he shot, end quote. Mike Stanley, a team leader at Edgewater Technology, said the shooting, quote, Seems like such a random, ridiculous thing. The victims were not McDermott's bosses, and Mike Stanley said that with a couple of exceptions, quote, he, McDermott, had nothing to do with them, and that, quote, they were receptionists, for God's sakes. During the trial, one juror and several relatives of victims left the courtroom after seeing graphic photographs of a police video of the seven people who were gunned down. As several relatives of the victims' families spoke, McDermott sat emotionless at the defense table his face buried in a Bible. He is noted to have never once looked at those who were speaking. Relatives of the victims said they were angered by McDermott's claims of insanity during the trial. They asked the judge to give him the maximum penalty allowable under the law. David Marceau, brother of victim Paul Marceau, said, quote, Michael McDermott has victimized the family and friends of seven victims twice. 
first on December 26, 2000, and now he has dragged us through this long trial. He trivializes the death of seven precious people by fabricating the story to mask his guilt. End quote. Reddington requested concurrent terms for McDermott. Prosecutor Thomas O'Reilly asked that each victim be remembered in their own individual way and thus requested consecutive sentences. O'Reilly then went on to say, quote, Michael McDermott is owed no mercy by the court, by the families, by anyone. He deserves the ultimate punishment, which is not allowed in Massachusetts, end quote. So what he is presumably talking about is the death penalty because there is no death penalty in Massachusetts. It's not legal. And if the jury found him insane, McDermott would have only been committed to a mental hospital for an indefinite period of time rather than being sent to prison. The Middlesex County jury rejected those insanity claims and rejected the testimony that he believed he was killing Adolf Hitler and his soldiers at the direction of an archangel. After 16 hours of deliberations over the course of three days, McDermott was convicted in 2002 of all seven counts of first-degree murder. Judge R. Malcolm Graham sentenced McDermott to seven consecutive sentences of life without parole, one for each victim. McDermott, who sat through much of the trial reading a Bible, showed no emotion to the verdict given. As court officers led McDermott away, the courtroom erupted in applause. Victims' relatives broke down in tears when they heard the first guilty verdict read. Reddington, who said McDermott still sent him Christmas cards from prison each year, still disagrees with the verdict, saying, quote, I always felt that Mr. McDermott was and is a very sick man, and there's just no winners anywhere. It was just a complete and utter tragedy, end quote. Dan Haggerty, husband of victim Janice Haggerty, spoke in court after the verdict was announced, calling McDermott a, quote, weak, cowardly, pathetic loser, end quote. He also talked about how his late wife was buried in the cemetery, where the couple had taught their daughter to ride her bike and said, quote, I feel such anger and sorrow when I think of the events that will be coming up for my daughter that Janice won't be there for, end quote. McDermott was incarcerated in Old Colony Correctional Center in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. And to this day, he's still there. Yes, correct. Yep, he's alive. He was 42 in 2000, so 42 plus 19 is 61. It's actually not that old. That's not old at all. No, so good. He still has a while to rot away in there. Well, until he dies. (laughs) Yeah, which maybe will come soon. Maybe. I don't know what his health conditions are. McDermott today is cited in the 2003 psychology book, Why We Hate. And in 2008, McDermott's case was studied in the psychological psychology program, Most Evil. Correct. Psychology. You know what? It is really hard. Psychology, psychiatry, physiological, 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 psychological, physical, psychiatrical. I don't think that one's a word. But psychiatric. Psychiatric is. Psychiatric. A little bit difficult to keep track of all of them. There's a lot of silent S's. A lot of silent P's. P's. Yeah, the S's (laughs) are very (laughs) pronounced. Got it. Yeah. The Wakefield Massacre was the worst rampage in an American workplace since November 2nd, 1999, when a 40-year-old copier repairman shot seven people dead 
at the Xerox Corporation in Honolulu, Hawaii. This case, though, marks an important place in the evolution of police investigations, at least in Massachusetts. This case was one of the very first profile, high-profile murder cases where investigators persuaded the courts to let them search the computers of a suspect for evidence. Today, it's a pretty common practice. In fact, uh, almost all the times, if there's a computer, they seize it, especially yeah, I would, yeah. serial killers or shootings. Oh, yeah. They try to see if there was premeditated thoughts. Yeah. And in this case, it definitely helped because they were able to find previous articles and books that he researched. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, it's done, like you said, so often nowadays. It's interesting that this was the, one of the first times it was actually done, and it was 2000. I guess that kind of makes sense. It's kind of like right around the edge of when everyone started having their own computer. Yeah. I don't really know too much about... I'd be interested to know the very first one, the very first one used in a court ever. In a court? Yeah. yeah. That'd be pretty interesting. Probably. A little side research? Yeah. Like, do you need a warrant? You must need a warrant. Yeah, I mean, I read a You need a bit. warrant to do, like, anything, right? Before they're, like, found guilty, so... Yeah, but part of his computer was in the apartment that they searched with all of the other... Evidence. Right, and they need a warrant to search the apartment, so I guess maybe yeah, that's, like, part of it. covered. But I think, if I remember correctly, in the actual document, the Commonwealth of Mc versus McDermott, um, they went through so many files and actually categorized the files according to year that they pulled it from but also other categories and that they didn't actually use all of the data on the computer in the courtroom yeah um so i think there's probably more on his computer that probably was a nod to um his premeditation kind yeah. of but oh yeah for sure yeah you i don't think you can put someone on trial these days without a computer i mean no. there's just like a plethora of they bring i own your phones text messages i think of um with, oh, making a murderer, which I know you don't watch, but no. they found a lot of. Well, I don't want to give anything away. It's from the second season, really. I think, but like the shit you can find on a computer that's like clearly either they're a murderer or they're about to be a murderer. Like they found some really, really, really what? horrific things on that. Computer. From our computers, it's literally just past cases of serial killers if we ever that's true it, that could be bad <laughs> yeah. like, like i, I think we've in, like looked up weird things we've to, typed in streptamine streptamine yeah. morphine opium how <laughs> do you do these <laughs> like a lobotomy like bad yeah no my computer definitely it, the only way to get rid of that is just to smash it physically and burn it and then drown it and then probably bury it in your backyard and that's the only way but you don't have to because <laughs> you're not you're not doing anything bad. That's true. Yeah, you're right. But yeah, just like think of the plethora of evidence you can find on someone's, and you can probably man like like manipulate it to. Not that I'm saying like they no yeah like obviously whatever, yeah. but you can probably it's probably kind of scary how much shit you could find and maybe make it try to look a certain way. That's kind of concerning to think about. Yeah, but yeah, I just I did think it was interesting that this was one of the first cases that. That was, that practice was done. James Jajuga, the state's public safety secretary, has urged companies since that shooting to work closely with local police departments to try and prevent workplace violence. He said, quote, as we look at corporate downsizing and workforce reductions, we've got to be aware of some of the violent incidents that seem to emanate from those kinds of things happening. 
What we've got to do is be aware of all the factors that employees are confronted with and be able to identify those warning signs, end quote. After the shootings, the company established the Edgewater Wakefield Memorial Foundation, Inc. Edgewater CEO Shirley Singleton announced that the foundation had raised more than $500,000 for the families of the seven victims, and each family had been given $5,000 for immediate expenses. A year after, a parishioner of St. Joseph's, the church across the street from Edgewater Technology, said the community has grown stronger in the year since the shooting. At the church, there is a plaque commemorating the victims in the church's entryway, and a new bronze cross adorns the roof, purposely pointing toward the shooting site. A flowering apple tree was planted outside Edgewater's offices in Wakefield in memory of the seven victims, Janice Haggerty, Jennifer Bragg Capobianco, Cheryl Troy, Rose Manfredi, Louis Javel, Paul Marceau, and Craig Wood. Every December, carnation flowers are woven into the branches in their memory. Today, McDermott is still incarcerated, like we said, at the Old Colony Correctional Center, a Massachusetts Department of Correction men's prison in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. It's a tough one, but I actually hadn't heard the story, so... I haven't either, and it's literally down the road. It, well, yeah, ish. it's up the road a bit, but... I did read, so there was kind of a series of office uh, shootings that took place around this time. Uh, there was this one, there was the copy repairman, there was another one out in Chicago, I believe. Um, and this kind of started that wave of what we see in particularly larger companies where they started putting a front desk security guard in a lot of offices and corporations, uh-huh. especially high-rise buildings, to kind of get security there to become a, um, what's the word? Like, first defense? First defense, I guess. Yeah, no. I, I'm not an economist, but isn't this like about the time of like, didn't the economy like shit the bed around 2000 I, I was not old enough but but if that's the case like i can i could see a it correlation between that because recession. right there's a recession going on and i'm sure there were a lot of companies that like actually we said there was a quote from someone that said this but like um downsizing and pay cuts and mm-hmm. um those things are often triggers to someone that might already be predisposed to this kind of behavior but a stressor like that could send them over the edge so that would make sense if there was a spike in like office shootings around this time i guess definitely yeah i mean i guess in this case it doesn't sound like their company was doing poorly i mean they they merged with someone else but but it if for this it seems like the stressor was the fact that he owed the irs money and obviously was about to be making like 200 dollars a week which is that is stressful so i think that was kind of the trigger it seemed like they well not it seemed like they were trying to use the um defense of insanity Mm -hmm. for mcdermott pretty much claiming like talking using his psychiatrists and people who are trying to claim that not trying to claim. They are claiming that he has a mental illness. A, maybe multiple mental illnesses, depression, OCD, multiple personality, whatever it is may be. And but then try to claim that that's it made him not responsible for mm-hmm. his actions. 
clearly that failed. And I mean, if but you're that's asking, not to say he didn't have mental illness. No, yeah, like, I mean, obviously this is a really hard subject, but like my opinion on the matter is, yeah, he probably did have a mental illness. He had depression. What half America has depression? They're not killing people. I mean, just because you have a mental disorder does not. Uh, I don't know. I don't think say that if somebody has depression, no, that's, uh, yeah. that's a defense to walk into your office building and shoot seven people. No. Um. So. But it definitely played into why. Yeah, which is even tougher because then it's like, so if somebody has actually does have depression, that's obviously not killing people. They're gonna like, isn't that insulting to be like, oh well, you can kill people and it's fine because you have no. Depression. But they proved that in court that. Just because he had depression. That's what they're saying. That right. he wasn't proven mentally insane. He still knew right from wrong. And- right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I... I Like, somebody said it was tragedy all around, which, yeah, I agree with. But I think that justice was served. I mean, I think that was the right thing to do with seven consecutive life. Yeah. Serv- Instead uh, of putting services. it all into one. Yeah, concurrent. Mm-hmm. Because even, I think if you have one concurrent life sentence, he could have gotten out, or he well, could have no, because it was for without, appeal, right? It was a, without the possibility of parole, but he probably could have tried to appeal. I don't know, but yeah, we've seen that in other cases that we've covered where they got out and they were supposed to never get out. Yeah, it's basically like their last just because jail chance was flowing and they like merged jails for some reason. This and maybe it's because it's. It's pretty recent. It's more recent than others that we've covered, like 1800s, 19. But for some reason, this one hit a lot harder than the other ones, especially when we were researching it. Um, you mentioned that when we got to the victims part, it was, it was even sad. harder. It, yeah. Well, I think, I don't know. It's like. What makes this different than the other episodes that we've covered? Well, first of all, it, it was more than one victim which we've done before but um i just feel like with like killers that are like serial killers or even okay even if it's like somebody killing their girlfriend or boyfriend out of passion or their mother out of passion or you know you're a serial killer and you do this because it brings you some kind of fucked up pleasure or power whatever like, this is something completely different in my eyes where it's, like, why? Like we don't really understand why. And it's not like he killed, you know, somebody that he has some kind of, like, passion or anger towards. It was random. It was, like, people from his office and it was, like, the receptionist who, like... Wasn't supposed to be there. Yeah, exactly. And it just feels like there wasn't really a reason and that, to me, is, like, so scary and sad. And also, I think it's just like, you. I don't know, we both work in an office. That's true. And like, I just picture like myself and my coworkers in this situation. And it's so scary. Like this could happen to anyone. And how are you really supposed to prevent it? Speaking of that, did your work have a um, active shooter plan? No. You should probably start one. But, but, like, even that is so scary. I, we don't – I don't even – Well, we actually have an active shooter plan. Well, yeah. Well, you're at a school. True. 
And the biggest thing, okay, so if there is an active shooter in the building, and then this is after the police come, and the police get on to the scene, they say, do not rush to the police, because a person's first instinct is either fight or flight, so you're either going to stay underneath your cubicle, desk, what have you, table, and just be so scared you can't move. But the other reaction would be to instantly just fly at the police mm. and be like, oh, you're here. Thank goodness. Yeah. Like screaming, crying. I mean, that sounds like a terrible idea. And the minute mm-hmm. it seems like you might do that, but that sounds like a terrible They idea. say, do not do that. Right. Come up very slowly with both your hands up because in that moment, if they have not caught the active shooter, the police officers don't know that you're not the shooter and, and don't know running that at you're- them. Exactly. Yeah. So they say that's one of the biggest things. And then the other thing is, that they recommend don't fight the person unless you, I guess, like, they can't tell you not to. But they highly recommend you don't fight the person mm-hmm. because it can agitate them. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, we show a presentation each year about active shooters because that's the preventative world that we live in. But I think it is good to have a plan just in case to know, almost like a fire evacuation drill. Ugh. You should start one. You really it's should. It's so scary. Well, you must have a fire plan. You, <laughs> we have <laughs> like a piece of paper printed out and like taped to one wall that should, but it's like not laminated. <laughs> I, we don't talk about it. If there's At a fire all. alarm goes off, you just go out the door. Do I you have know. meetings like staff no. meetings? Well, we're kind of a small office. Well. Yeah, maybe we're not very prepared. <laughs> you need stuff. to you need to step yeah. up to the plate and hand out like a booklet to your coworkers and say, "Here is everything you need. Please read it. We'll have a meeting tomorrow." They'll be so impressed. But still, with you. what does that even do? Like, it's just better to know. It's just sad that you even have to like be that prepared. I I think it's better to be prepared and know what's out there or what the possibility of what could happen versus that happens. Nobody's prepared. There's mass chaos. And I think in the long run, more people would get injured and unfortunately killed. It's true. I know it's a smart thing to do, but I think the other reason why this was so scary is because a lot of the people that were quoted afterwards were say like, they never would have get like, yeah, they would never have guessed guess it. it. This guy was quiet and private, but like never displayed nice. signs. Like, right. Right. So talked about regular life. Right. It wasn't he it wasn't like he was a complete, you know, loner, introverted, shut down, never spoke a word. Right. Which just tells you that you never know what's going on in somebody's personal life Very when true. you have these coworkers that maybe you don't talk to every day and you don't know and you just see them say hi bye and that's it. You don't know what's going on in their life. So That's true. Just be nice to everybody, I guess. Is the final word i concur yeah with that i think that's about it that's all we have mm-hmm. we're if- gonna go s- eat some ham <laughs> stuff our feelings no <laughs> looking for more topics if anyone has new england legends urban legends paranormal crime true crime anything any synonyms mm. to those words let us know. Let us know. How can they let us know? Oh, uh, you can. Well, thanks for asking. You're welcome. You can email us at killerbabespodcast at gmail.com, which would be awesome because podcast. <laughs> I get <laughs> the notifications directly to my phone. Or you can follow us on our journey 
on Facebook on and our Instagram. journey. <laughs> Puke. Follow my weightlifting journey. Yeah, for real. You can follow it at Killer Babes Podcast. Twitter got cut off. It's Killer Babes Pod. And at the very end, I apologize for any coughs or throat clearings because I am still Kirby sick. Kirby has chronic bronchitis, which it's lasts true. from approximately now till May. So and, and everybody might, pray for me. Might I add that this is a lifetime <laughs> chronic problem. Uh, the doctors actually told me last year that I was diagnosed with it. Because it was like the first time I finally just went to a doctor. You know, in the years past, I've just suffered miserably with a lot of drugs of um, over the counter, not <laughs> um, yeah, clear not that the up. street ones. But uh, yeah, so I have an inhaler <laughs> that's seasonal. Oh my god! And I will say on my so when we fill out our like our benefits as well, you have to fill out if you have any problems for insurance. <laughs> so you have to say that now. I have to say chronic bronchitis. Which oh, does no, dock me funny. a point. Oh no. By the way. Oh no. It so. is sad. But you know what else you have to mark? This is completely unrelated, but you have to mark if you're like planning a pregnancy because they also like will adjust it accordingly. And that's like, I don't know. I'm not I'm not planning. I don't plan anything. <laughs> okay, so when you do have a kid, I'll know that it's unplanned and <laughs> tell them. Well, they can just listen to this podcast and <clears throat> Anyway, so anyway, I apologize. I'm sorry. I'm sick. Uh, Just so you know, she has chronic bronchitis (laughs) if you hear a cough. Bear with me. That's all. That's all we got. All right. See you next week. Bye, guys. Bye.